What's up? Welcome back to Nostalgia. Dave here with another pod. What's going on in pop culture right now? Man, this is probably one of the longest pods of the year. There was just so much stuff I really wanted to touch on this week, so it's a long one. Hit those time codes. See what topic you want to listen to. Do what you got to do. But a lot to get into here. The SAG after strike is ended, thus Hollywood's back to work. The 2024 Grammy nominations came out. New music from Espa and The Kid Leroy and Pink Panthers, a double dose of Marvel with the end of Loki season two, as well as a new film, The Marvels. Also on the film front, Digimon Adventure 2, the beginning. Yes, jumping in the Digimon this week. Let's go. A new David Fincher film on Netflix featuring the return of Michael Fassbender. That's the killer. And oh yeah, For All Mankind, season four premiered on Apple TV+. Plus. And last but not least, Saltburn, which I got to early before release. So so a lot of good stuff there. Let me know how you're feeling. Make sure you see the links below. YouTube.com plus NostalgiaPod. Linktree.com plus NostalgiaPod. Get the pod any way you can. Leave a rating. Do the thing. Send me a tweet. Leave a comment. Let me know how you're feeling. Let's get into it. What's up? Welcome back to Nostalgia. Dave here to discuss the ending of the 2023 actor strike. Yes, the SAG after strike is tentatively ending as of November 8th following a 118-day strike combined with the earlier Writers Guild strike. That was about six months that we just had where Hollywood scripted production was shut down due to work stoppage. And obviously this is welcome news that the strike is concluding, especially given what gains have been made by the actors just like the writers before them uh you know i think we talk about the writer strike when that ended and i think the initial clearly incorrect thought was that oh the actors resolution will be more of a formality they'll follow suit the writers were kind of leading charge here that was not the case there were certainly certain sticking points specific to the acting branch uh specifically uh, protections against artificial intelligence. Not that AI was uh, absent from the writer's strike, it certainly was not, but rather uh, the details of that were uh, different. And now, you know, looking at what we do know, we don't know all the details just yet, it's still a tentative agreement, but sounds like this will be ratified, which is great. Uh, the actors got AI protections for generative AI being used to create synthetic performers, something that primarily would affect a higher, more higher earning, more profile actors. And specifically, this would be resulting in both requiring consent for such an action and, of course, compensation for it as well. I mean, this is kind of like basic stuff that just needed to be ratified and established in the industry just because it's brand new technology and you have to put some guardrails up that protect your labor with this fast-moving world that is, of course, generative AI, as we all know. Also, a big, big thing about this was a residual structure update based on viewership, specifically regarding to streaming of film and TV. The writers also were fighting for something like this, just an update that was just kind of long overdue and actually reflective of the current environment that movies and TV now exist in. I think the other big one is just the general gain in uh, you know pay raises, and it's above the pattern standard 5%, which is also long overdue. And again, these are kind of effects, uh, changes that really affect 
below the line, not famous people. And that's really what this fight was about, was just for the more common worker. So obviously, with a negotiation with the workshop, you don't get everything you want. The writers found that as well. But it seems like there was a real gains made because the deal that they, the actors, got in November 2023 was not the deal being offered to them by the AMPTP months prior. Now, could the AMPTP have prevented the strike and offered that deal sooner? Absolutely. But that's just the world we live in. So at this point now, it's really a question of saving the 2024 movie slate because production is not just going to start back up tomorrow. You know, whether it's wrangling the crews and getting things back in the swing, especially with the holidays coming up, some productions probably won't really get back to work until January, just really due to logistical issues. But we obviously, the writers have been working on stuff uh, for a while now, following the end of their strike. So there's momentum for sure. And we'll see how this affects award season. I think award season will probably be able to recover more or less fine due to the normally annoyingly long length to award season. That's probably going to benefit this, you know. Um, currently, any movie that had been out and had its moment already, whether it's something small like Past Lives or obviously an oxygen sucker like Oppenheimer and Barbie, those movies are at an advantage right now because those movies were able to be promoted normally and get in front of people. Now, at talent will be able to push the smaller movies coming out this year. So I have a sense that that will more or less stabilize. I'll be curious if stuff that was kind of like tentatively delayed that wanted to contend this year, such as the bike riders from Mike Nichols, I wonder if that will quickly be dated again and get back in the mix. Bike riders by, sorry, Jeff Nichols, not his father, Mike, who has passed. And we've already seen the effects of the movie calendar from the strike already, right? Of course, Dune 2 delayed from this fall to March. Craven the Hunter delayed from this September to August next year. Challengers from with Zendaya delayed from September to April. Those are probably the biggest ones. And now we've, I think, seen some more of the kind of stabilizing things where like Venom 3 delayed from the summer to the fall next year. Honestly, probably a good idea given the success of Venom with previous fall releases. Quiet Place, day one, delay from spring to June next year. All good. You know, uh, I think a lot of stuff probably should be safe now, right? George Miller's Furiosa, that already wrapped production, so that, that should be good. Uh, I guess the question is the Marvel slate, right? You have Deadpool 3, Thunderbolts, and Captain America 4. And all of those are in a varying stages of production. It sounds like Deadpool 3 is the farthest along, hence why that was moved back up into May after a lot of date switching. Hopefully they can sort that out, because the industry and the theater industry especially will kind of need big temples, right? Because we know Mission Impossible 8 and Disney's Snow White live action, those both delayed out of 2024 into 2025. Hopefully that's the last of the big delays. Um, Gladiator 2, still currently set for fall 2024. That is not yet finished production, but Ridley Scott recently said that he had been editing the first 90 minutes during the strike. So I have confidence Gladiator will come out given how fast Ridley likes to work in general. But yeah, uh, hopefully crisis is more or less averted. Obviously the, the, the effects of the delays and just general work stoppage, six months, it, it takes a while for that to unshake itself. I think we're going to see kind of a gap in scripted TV. That was already coming as scripted TV production was going down. We kind of already knew that was the case. Peak TV has peaked and that was happening before the strikes. But now I think we're just going to see a bigger gap. Not that there's not TV 
coming out. There's a lot of stuff releasing at the beginning of the year, but I'll be curious if there's enough of a gap in scripted TV shows coming out that the audience, the average person, feels any difference. Because I think all of us know nowadays that there's just so many TV shows that are really great or supposed to be pretty decent that you might have interest in, but you just don't have enough time to check them all out. I wonder if that feeling will honestly realistically change that much for the average person with less stuff coming out. We'll see how that goes. In terms of the big shows, you know, I think HBO kind of let on uh, recently that Euphoria Season 3, White Lotus Season 3, those are 2025 shows at this point, but House of the Dragon is coming in 2024 for Season 2. Be curious if Apple's Pachinko and obviously Disney's Andor Season 2, HBO's Industry Season 2, hopefully we still get all of that in 2024. I think we will, but we'll see. Uh, Stranger Things, I think that's like Netflix's number one priority to get that final Stranger Things season out next year but we'll see because when you have all this production ramping up at the same time there's a fight for resources right so it's not everything that wants to be shot right now can be shot right now primarily existing tent poles stuff that was in the middle of production that is all at the priority right now so a lot of new material a lot of new work uh, is going to be delayed from a production standpoint slash perhaps ungreenlit we've kind of already been hearing about that with stuff and that obviously really affects uh, writers, you know, who necessarily don't get paid for stuff that doesn't get sold anymore. So the effects will continue for some time, but thankfully the hard part uh, is over. But let me know how are you feeling about how the strikes have gone on over the last six months. Um, I Obviously, I think this was objectively worthwhile for what it did, which is necessary for the labor that is required to operate such an industry. So short-term pain, long-term gain, we'll see. Let me know how you're feeling about it. And for more reactions to Hollywood, subscribe. And I'll see you next time. What's up? Welcome back to Nostalgia. Dave here with my reaction to the 2024 Grammy nominations. I, of course, did my nomination predictions last week. Now it's time to look at the nominees we did get. I'm going to go through all the big categories, talk about the shocks, the surprises, the snubs, and make sure you come back because when the Grammys are airing, Next year, I'll be doing my Grammy predictions and, of course, talking about the Grammy winners when that time comes. So make sure you subscribe. But yeah, let's get into these nominees. Not a whole lot of surprises at the top. With Album of the Year, it's more or less what we were thinking. We knew Taylor Swift, Midnight, SZA, SOS, Olivia Rodrigo, Guts, then Miley Cyrus, and La Summer Vacation. Very confident in those four getting in, and they did. Then following that, we had Lana Del Rey, which I also thought was pretty safe, John Batiste for World Music Radio, Boy Genius, the record. Also thought those were pretty safe. Uh, the last one for Album of the Year, Janelle Monae's The Age of Pleasure. Janelle Monae has been Grammy nominated before. I hadn't really considered this for Album of the Year just because the album was not quite as well received as her past work. But I'm a big fan of her, so I'm happy to see that one in there. Honestly, pretty sol- solid Album of the Year field, I have to say. You know, Song of the Year, Record of the Year, as we expect, uh, a lot of overlap. Uh, you know, the big three again this year, Scissors, Kill Bill, Lily Rodrigo's Vampire, Taylor Swift's anti-hero. Again, we expected that. Miley Cyrus' flowers as well. That was kind of the big four for these two these these two categories. They're in there for both. Then from there, we have uh, John Baptiste has two songs uh, in these two categories. Boy Genius are in here. Billie Eilish, unsurprisingly, What Was I Made For? Nominated in both categories from the Barbie soundtrack. Kind of saw that one coming. Billie's just a 
Grammy darling, man. She can do anything to get through, but she's so great. Not a big deal. Record of the year, biggest surprise for me, easily. Victoria Monet's On My Mama, which is a great song, but I just did not ex- see this Victoria Monet come up happening to get nominated for Record of the Year. Very exciting. Good for her. Um, this is quite the come up from someone who really you know, came into her own as a friend and songwriter for Ariana Grande and I think made a lot of noise this year with Jaguar 2 and that lead single on my mama so that one's pretty 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 cool was not did not see that one coming uh, Dua Lipa song of the year dance of the night also off the Barbie soundtrack a lot of momentum for that for sure Lana Del Rey A&W but a pretty solid field can't really complain about it too much however best new artist this is where I have some notes so let's talk about who did get nominated Coco Jones, Gracie Abrams, Fred Again, Ice Spice, Jelly Roll, Noah Kahan, Victoria Monet, and The War and Treaty. So, again, Victoria Monet didn't quite see that one coming. A really nice uh, come up for her. And the fact that she has a, uh, you know, was it Record of the Year nomination? Maybe she could win this Best New Artist category, which again, I don't think anyone was thinking about last week. Jelly Roll, you know, I get it. Um, cool for him breaking through into the mainstream at such an old age it's cool Ice Spice knew that was coming Coco Jones knew that was coming Noah Kahan knew that was coming Fred again I acknowledged him uh, last week wasn't necessarily sure if it would happen he's not super new per se but his like breakthrough is more new it's a great nomination it's a real finger on the pulse thing he's basically the face of EDM right now really cool here's the problem though we don't have Peso Pluma in this category we don't have Pink Panthers in this category. Those two were layups. Pink Panthers, arguably the most interest, interesting person in dance pop right now. Uh, Peso Pluma with Carinos Tumbados out of Mexico, the hottest artist in the Latin scene, taking over the whole globe. These are two layups and they miss them. Really baffling. Bailey Zimmerman is not here. He is a rapidly rising country star. I'm not even a country fan, but like Bailey Zimmerman's going to be huge. Another miss. And then no K-pop here. Especially New Jeans. Where is New Jeans? New Jeans have only been around a, less than a year and a half. And every time they make music, it is a hit. Not only in Asia, but also in the United States. They're taking over TikTok. They're rapidly rising. Look at what happened when they played Lollapalooza this summer. Their very first performance in the United States. They dominated. It's just... It's just kind of stupid that the Grammys continue to not have K-pop in Best New Artist. I'm not saying you need to put everyone who's new in there. You know, there's tons of technically people you could pick. But once in a while, something comes up that should be in there. But Blackpink never got nominated for Best New Artist. BTS never got nominated for Best New Artist. Now, K-pop is incredibly global. And still, it's not happening. New Jeans is clearly the ascendant act that would have made perfect sense in this category. I'm very disappointed, even if I'm not that surprised. Uh, kind of going through the rest of the categories. Pop solo performance. This one's pretty strong. You have the Billy song, Miley, Olivia, Taylor, and then what, what, what uh, else could sneak in there? Doja Cat's Paint the Town Red. Of course, the Doja album will be eligible at the next Grammys, but Paint the Town Red as lead single was this, this Grammy term. Big fan of that song. It's a great song. Happy to see it recognized. It, of course, will not be winning. Pop vocal album. I was curious how this one would, uh, you know, play out. You have Miley, Olivia, and Taylor, as expected. And then you also have Ed Sheeran, Subtract, and Kelly Clarkson's Chemistry. Bit interesting with that. Dance electronic recording. 
honestly really love how this one went. You have Apex Twin, then you have Disclosures, higher than ever before, James Blake's Loading, Rami and Fred again, Strong, and Skrillex Fred again, Flow Dance, Rumble. That's pretty stacked. Really like that one. Honestly, anyone could win it. Best Pop Dance Recording. I'm also very excited about this one, primarily because Troy Sivan is nominated for Rush, the lead single from his album that will be eligible next Grammy period. One of the best singles of the year, an amazing song. Honestly, the best song Troy's ever made, in my opinion. I mentioned it last week. I was really hoping Troy Sivan would get recognized for Rush. Not even expecting him to win, but that's a really awesome recognition. And that kind of recognition is awesome when you level up as an artist and like come into your own the way he did this year. The fact that he got that Grammy nom, I think, is a really cool gesture. Uh, dance electronic music album. You have James Blake. You have Fred again. You have Skrillex. Really cool that Fred Again's Actual Life 3 is there. That would be my pick. I really hope he can win. Honestly, best rock album, better than normal, to be honest. You have Foo Fighters, Paramore, Metallica, Greta Van Vliet, and Queens of the Stone Age. We've seen worse. Best alternative music album, kind of the same same story. Arctic Monkeys, Boy Genius, Gorillaz, Lon Del Rey, PJ Harvey. Again, we've seen worse. Best progressive R&B album, SZA, Janelle Monet. But also the Diddy album that recently came out. Did not see that one coming. Shout out Diddy. Really kind of unexpected for me. Best R&B album though. Pretty stacked. Babyface, Coco Jones, Emily King, Summer Walker, Victoria Monet. Best rap performance. Baby Keem, Kendrick the Hillbillies. I thought that one was pretty obvious given Kendrick's Grammy uh, chokehold. Black Thoughts, Love Letter. Coil Array's Players, which, you know, some people really dislike Coy's sampling heavy artistry. Honestly, I'm okay with this. I think that one, that's a big hit, but also a pretty cool use of a sample. I'm with it. Drake and 21 Savage's Rich Flex. And then kind of unexpected for me, Killer Mike, uh, Scientists and Engineers featuring Andre 3000, Future, and Erica Allen Kane. They always have some old heads in here nowadays. Killer Mike getting through with the solo album he had earlier this year. Interesting. Melodic rap performance. Very happy about this one. Burna Boy and 21 Savage's Sitting on Top of the World from Burna Boy's album is here. That song is so damn good. I was not expecting a nomination for it, considering it's not even in a, a genre category for African artists. You know, it's not it's not the Afrobeats uh, global music type category. No, it's a melodic rap performance for Burna Boy and 21. Love it. Also, Doja Cat's Attention, Drake and 21's Spin About You. Not expect, did not expect that one. Scissors Low, and Dirk and J. Cole's All My Life. Strong category for sure. Best rap song? I'd say this one's less strong. You have the Killer Mike song, Scientists and Engineers again. You have Drake and 21's Rich Flex, Doja Cat's Attention. And then we have Little Uzi Rich Just Wanna Rock and Nicki Minaj, Ice Spice, and Aqua's Barbie World. Hmm. The Barbie World one puzzles me because that's like barely a new song. It's just some verses on Barbie Girl from Aqua, you know, from 25 years ago. I don't know about that one, even if it's a pretty solid remix. And then Just Wanna Rock. Big hit. Obviously, the dance, people know it. Monster hit. I just never really liked it. I never thought it was that good of a song, to be honest. So, not a fan of the nom. Best rap album, pretty good. You know, you have Drake and 21's Her Loss, as expected. Again, Drake had, in fact, submitted this for the Grammys, despite his previous comments. Metro Boomin's Heroes and Villains, Travis Scott's Utopia. We knew those three would be in there. And then Killer Mike's Michael. Could tell how that was going, based off his other noms. And then Nas's King Disease 3. Nas has won this before recently with King's Disease, his first win after all this time. So I was kind of expecting him to get 
recognized for this or Magic 2. So pretty cool. So notably, um, on the country side, again, I'm not even a country fan, but Zach Bryan and Morgan Wallen did not break through to the big categories that I recently went over. Uh, they did get nominated in some of the country categories. Funny enough, Wallen's only nomination is Best Country Song for Last Night, but he did not actually write that song, so he's not actually technically nominated, funny enough. Morgan Wallen, like him or hate him, he's certainly polarizing, as we know. He's the biggest artist of the year in the U.S., and yet pretty much underrecognized. Back to Best New Artist, the Peso Pluma miss really stands out because the Grammys know who Peso Pluma is. He's nominated for Musica Mexicana album for his album Genesis from earlier this year. So it's not like he got blanked completely, which is just makes it so weird that he was, in fact, not recognizing Best New Artist when it made so much sense. Uh, African music performance, you have Burner Boy City Boys. So between that and Sitting on Top of the World, my two favorite songs off the Burner Boy album are both recognized in different categories. Pretty happy about that. Of course, that album is also in Global Music Album. And yeah, that about, that about does it. Again, check the full nominations list. There's many other categories, but Nothing too surprising for me at the top. The biggest surprise is how Best New Artists went, where they did some, made some good picks and made some baffling omissions. I think rap, pretty solid all this time around. We don't have a DJ Kala nomination, thankfully, you know. Um, obviously, then we have we have our gripes, but let me know. How did you feel about the Grammy nominations? Who were you pulling for? Did you get what you wanted? Did you have the nominations come through that you were pulling for? Uh, let me know, good or bad and how you feel about the nominations overall. And of course, make sure you subscribe because I'll be doing my Grammy predictions next year in the lead up to the 2024 Grammys. And for more Grammys as well as Oscars and Emmys, awards talk, music reviews, subscribe, and I'll see you next time. What's up? Welcome to Nostalgia. Dave here with a review of Espa's fourth EP, Drama. Espa back with their second EP of the year, following My World, as well as their first Japanese single, Zoom Zoom, recently doing their first tour of the year of their career espa's been everywhere espa's been around uh, obviously the ascendant new girl group from sm entertainment a few years in the game at this point and to this point i've been like a like small like lowercase fan of the group i've never really loved any of their projects they've had some big singles but overall i've kind of been stuck on i think espa's lack of a consistent musical identity they've been kind of doing a lot of different things and i think they definitely have some strength and they have they, the four members have like impressive vocal talent so it's a bit frustrating that the kind of lack of musical cohesion is so kind of consistent with this group to this point you know leading up to drama we got their second english single better things and it's a f solid song it's kind of vanilla kind of down the middle low risk pop song but to me, it just kind of stands in contrast to like the biggest songs of their name to this point. You know, songs like Next Level and Black Mamba and Savage. Espa's biggest hits are these big maximalist pop songs, you know, usually featuring like really, I think, aggressive rapping from like someone like Karina and then big booming vocals from Winter. You know, I think those two consistently stand out among the four of them vocally and then you have something like better things which to me it just doesn't stand stand out as like something espa made like anyone could have made that song it's just a bit simpler you know so i wasn't really sure like what to expect with drama again i'm still waiting for like a full-length album 
from Espa, you have to imagine that's coming next year. Like, how many EPs in a row can you make? But to this point, you know, we have this new EP. Title track, drama. This is in line with what I was talking about with some of their bigger hits. You know, um, starts right off, electronic production, Karina rapping, going really hard. Um, I think, to, and like, I enjoy the attitude with this group. I, I, like, I like the energy and the presence they usually carry themselves with. However, the chorus on drama, it just really underwritten you know the i bring the drama mama mama ma, ma, ma part you know kind of reminds me of what nct has been doing lately kind of reminds me of ives baddie from just a few weeks ago when you have these really underwritten hooks on top of your big single to me it really cuts the legs off of the song to be honest because it just makes the song not that fun to revisit but like they have the attitude on this song you know winter really hits some high notes on the bridge the bridge is awesome like she has such a striking voice so like the 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 special vocal moments like always stand out with their big songs but like i think the chorus kind of really handicaps this one trick or trick or trick i think giselle and karina starting off rapping again again i love i love the 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 fire on this one the pre-chorus build up into more of a traditional drop i actually like this song more than drama because the now you see me now you don't like the hook on this is i think a lot stickier um don't Blink, track three. I think this one's very catchy. Honestly, I think this is one of their best songs they've made. Like the guitar on it, nice drum tempo. Ning Ning and Giselle together, like they're gliding on that song. And then the pre-chorus, you have Karina, and then Karina and Winter with like their vocals like doubled together. Very catchy moment. And the chorus, I think, is really strong. Karina has a short second verse, but like I think that one's really catchy. Winter crushed in the high notes on the second second chorus. Then you have a Karina rapping bridge. Like to me, that's kind of all the parts of what make Espa great. Like when they're at their best, it's all those things. So honestly, I gotta say, this song "Don't Blink" up there with my favorite Espa songs. I think it's really special uh, for their career to this point. I hope I hope that one becomes a hit because I think that one is them at their best. A uh, hot air balloon. This one's interesting. This is a straight-up vibe shift for sure. Kind of like a squeaky tempo. It's very light. Still up-tempo, but very light. Very different. Like Honestly, this almost sounds like a Red Velvet song to me. Less so like an Espa song. You know, it's not hard. It's not aggressive like their big singles traditionally are. So that was, that was interesting. I don't know if I'll revisit it too much, but definitely, again, again, speaking kind of the musical identity being all over the place, they're trying a lot of different things. Um, to me, it's not necessarily a, a good thing, just because I feel like they're kind of throwing paint at the wall sometimes. Uh, the song "You" again, very light. I like the nice harmonies on this one. I like the keys and the production. This is like kind of just all singing, no real rapping on this one. I think this one's probably a bit more interesting than "Hot Air Balloon," which stands out just for being kind of out of left field. "You" though, this is kind of a vocal espo song. Sounds okay. And then Better Things, as I mentioned, the English song, kind of vanilla. So, yeah, I feel like I kind of say a lot of the same things every time Espa drops, where it's like, you want to like the project more than you end up do liking it. And at this point, I think SM needs to kind of commit to a lane. And, I mean, I would not be shocked for them to really just go after Western audiences and make more English music and promote that way. And we could certainly see that. But, I mean, I... I think they need to have like a really great project first. And I, I think they should just go big. 
you know, I mean, you could definitely call out Blackpink influence with some of their big singles. That's pretty clear. But Blackpink isn't really making music right now. So you could certainly fill that void and pick up that torch, even though, of course, you're a different label, different generation, etc. Not the worst idea, to be honest. So I'm kind of rooting for that to happen. I really think we need to get a full-length album next year. And I think we'll be okay. So we probably should get that. But we know they have more stuff uh, coming out. Um, SM keeps everyone working. So we'll see. But let me know, how'd you feel about Espa's drama? Did you like it more or less than My World from earlier this year? How are you feeling about Espa in general? And for more K-pop reviews, more music reviews, subscribe. And I'll see you next time. What's up? Welcome back to Nostalgia. Dave here with a review of The Kid Leroy's debut album, The First Time. The Kid Leroy is back. The Australian singer, still only 20 years old, but been around for a few years now and has pretty quickly risen up the pop star charts, finding a lot of success over the last few years in particular. Uh, look no further than his smash hit song, Stay, 2.8 billion streams on Spotify, the seventh most streamed song of all time on Spotify. Of course, the Justin Bieber feature has something to do with that, but nonetheless, the Kid Leroy has become pretty established, pretty mainstream. And now he's back with his full-length debut album after the F-Love mixtape series. And I gotta say, like, the Kid Leroy, I think he's, like, slowly getting better in the sense that he's becoming more polished of an artist. He's making more polished music. I'm still not the biggest fan of him overall, but I think there are some interesting choices made on the first time, and I think there is the opportunity for the Kid Leroy to further hone the musical approach he can use in the future, and maybe a more focused plan could come and deliver greater results. Right now, I think the first time, it's just kind of an example of all the different types of songs he's done to this point, and some of those just work better than others. So, you know, some of those songs also are just a little bit less interesting than others, because I think the Kid Leroy, the best thing you can say about the guy right now is, I think, his vocal delivery. He pushes his voice to the limit. He gives you a very raw performance, which really fits the angsty, uh, melodramatic lyrics and general vibe regarding most of his music. It's funny that the Kid Leroy has actually kind of disowned the sentiment of F Love 3, his last project, calling it immature and that he doesn't really stand by what that was about. I don't feel like he, like, quote, evolved all that much lyrically with the first time. Like, the whole, like, toxic relationship toxic heartbreak stuff it's still all over this you know and he sprinkles in some you know struggles dealing with wealth and fame as a newly successful person that's at least in here but for the most part it's still sounded pretty similar to me i think he's still very much a work in progress lyrically but he's also only 20 years old so hard to be too tough on him for that uh in terms of the music you know i think sorry the first track i like this one because that's where he really gets into the struggle stuff you know i, I like the performance that it gives you that very first uh, verse. Why the fuck I spent 260 on these chains? How am I so paranoid? I bulletproof my range. That whole verse, he like he rapidly like spits that one. I think it sounds pretty cool, and his ability to like give you like a pretty quick flow like that speaks to the more hip hop origins of his come up. Of course, signing to Little Bibby, and of course becoming into the uh, realm of Juice World and becoming a, a friend with Juice before Juice passed. Of course, you can still hear. The Juice World influence on the more hip hop leaning Kid Leroy stuff. For the most part, I feel like that's all I hear when he does do the rapping stuff. 
uh, I think of a song like uh, What's the Move, for example. It's just a straight-up juice flow. He doesn't really add much to that, but I think because of the fact that now he's really trying to be more of a singer, it doesn't bother me nearly as much anymore because it just doesn't come up, come, come up as much now. You know, in terms of the stuff that, like, doesn't quite work, on Call Me Instead, which features NBA Youngboy, he has, like, these pitched... Leroy has these pitched vocals in the beginning of the verse that uh, I saw people comparing to Frank Ocean, almost, like, vocal editing. Interesting. I, I just don't think that's necessarily should be his lane. More, I think, promising, though, on a song like What Just Happened, on a song like Love Again, you have like more of like a light rock feel to it. You, know, you got some drums, you got some guitar. It fits his like raw anguished singing actually pretty well. I think that could be a path forward for him because, you know, I think, you know, you think of a song like Stay, it's a catchy song, but like I think that kind of like synthy stuff, uh, it's just a little bland for his his singing. And maybe the counter would be that it doesn't get in the way of his discernible singing and thus you focus more on his like performance but to me i think just adding a little bit more like what you get on what just happened or love again i think that's a chance to perhaps level up the music to the next level interesting uh strangers part two interlude is a uh vocal uh like spoken interlude but it's not actually from the killer boy it's actually from justin bieber himself speaking out when he first met Haley. thought that was uh, amusing that that was on this album uh what's the move which I mentioned before for the juice flow. I actually like this song though because I think the f- it just kind of fits the beat well. Future and Baby Drill actually pretty choice features, pretty cool. Uh, a lot's been made, of course, about the lead single "Too Much" featuring Jungkook and Central C. I don't think this song's really special at all. It's just kind of one of those like label manufactured songs, pretty obviously. But it is a great example of just how far Central C and Jungkook have become in the Western music industry where you have a British rapper and a K-pop soloist as integrated into the pop machine like no one ever has before. And to me, that's just very impressive because it's just unprecedented. We haven't seen that before. So that's cool, even if I don't think the song's all that great. Uh, yeah, so that's the first time, man. Like, 20 songs, 51 minutes, stuff works, some stuff doesn't. I thought it wasn't the biggest fan of it of him to begin with, so I at least see progress, and I see pass forward to more interesting music. I think that's all you can really ask for from a guy who's still quite young at only 20 years old. So that's the Kid Leroy the first time. Let me know. How'd you feel about this? Did you see uh, progress in a positive direction like I did? What do you want to hear from him next? And for more music reviews, subscribe, and I'll see you next time. What's up? Welcome back to Nostalgia. Dave here with a review of Pink Panthers' debut album, Heaven Knows. Pink Panthers rapidly rising to pop stardom. Really only came onto everyone's radar in a big way two years ago 2021 found a lot of success posting songs and snippets on tiktok getting a lot of love for her i think intriguing use of samples and just presenting i think a really compelling new ver- new form of dance pop and got a lot of crit- critical acclaim her debut ep to hell with it mainstay on top 10 lists from critics for 2021. And since then, you know, the momentum has continued. I was quite shocked that Pink Panthers was not nominated for Best New Artist at the Grammys for 2024, which we just found out. That was a big miss to me. This was kind of a layup pick. Nonetheless, Pink Panthers has been everywhere. And in the lead single for Heaven Knows, Boy's a Liar, Part 2, 
ver- the part two version, of course, featuring a Ice Spice verse, that song peaked in the top 10 on Billboard. I think to this point, Pink Panthers has also been quite interesting just because the, the appreciation for her music it depends on where you are. You know, I think the sampling that she was doing with her earlier music got a lot of attention in the U.S. as kind of like a crate digging mentality. But those reference points were very familiar to the British audience. Of course, Pink Panthers is from the U.K. And I think that's kind of interesting to have somebody break through from the U.K. in a mainstream sense here in the U.S. because there actually hasn't really been too many British stars lately. You know, the, the biggest scale, it's, you know, what, Ed Sheeran and Harry and Adele. None of them are particularly new people, you know, and Central C, who's featured on this, probably the most ascendant and crossed over British rapper ever, but he's rapidly rising at the same time as Pink Panther. So it's coming at an interesting time. And Heaven Knows, I think, certainly stands out right off the bat for Pink Panthers because 13 songs, 34 minutes, these are like full length songs from her. Most of her other songs, even the ones that are fully formed songs with like verse, bridge, verse, chorus, etc., those were all like sub two minute songs, very TikTok generation. But, you know, with Heaven Knows, she has, I think, made a point of telling everyone that she was trying to make like real, genuine music, considers herself a pop artist. It was not necessarily tied down to some of the genre convention and stylistic choices that she made on her original come up and that's kind of evident when you look at the track list here pink panthers co-produced nearly every song on the track list which is awesome but she also has some big guns here muramasa greg kirsten just to name a few she's working with some established people and uh i think the stakes have been raised given how much love and attention but also popularity she has found in a short amount of time and at such a young age and i'm happy to say that the pink panthers debut album heaven knows is one of my favorite albums of 2023. I think this album is awesome and really certifies Pink Panthers as one of the most intriguing artists we have and definitely one of my favorites that we have going right now. I think there's just a lot of awesome stuff here. I'm a fan of pop. I'm a fan of dance pop. And the Pink Panthers brand of dance pop, bringing in some drum and bass, bringing in some UK garage, it's just right up my alley. I think this shit's great. Um, Just kind of going through the track list here. A lot of great features. You have Rema you know, from at, on the Afrobeat side of things. Central C, of course, from British uh, hip hop. Kalela from you know the alternative R and B space. Three choice people to work with, but also I think they all elevate the songs that are on. Really nice pairing. I mean, just shout out Central C by the way. He's on the Pink Panthers album, which came out the same day as the Kid Leroy album that he's also featured on. Central C as a UK trap rapper. It's crazy how big he's getting and continues to get. It, it, it's so cool. Really happy for him. But it's a really nice pairing between Pink Panthers and Senj, I have to say. Pretty cool. That's on the song, Nice to Meet You. But apart from those those brief features, you know, I think the Pink Panther's vocal delivery definitely stands out because she there's just kind of a light like fluffiness to the way she rides her songs, rides the beats. And usually it's like really like up-tempo like drum production, as you'd expect from like the genre influence. But she just kind of rides that shit and really glides it. It's really fun. And I think, and heaven knows, more so than any of her past work, there are some really sticky melodies on here. And I think that might speak to her approach this time around, as she was saying, with trying to be slightly more traditional in the structure of things. But I I thought there was just a lot of catchy stuff here. You know, um, 
going through it here. The the Isle, track four. Man, that's just a bop, man. So up-tempo. Definitely more traditional, but I think that song's great. Nice to meet you. It's Sench, as I said. I really like that one. Internet Baby Interlude. Despite the fact that it has, it's called an interlude, that is incredibly catchy performance from Pink Panther. She sounds so good. I love her flow on that. Ophelia, I love the drums. Feel Complete, another absolute banger. I love the drums. I think the performance is so fun. It's upbeat all around, almost like a sci-fi twinkle on the beat. It's so good. Uh, the song Blue, definitely like the most drum and bass of all the songs here, but still these really booming, fun vocals from Pink Panthers. The I'm not hanging with you part, that refrain is just so sticky. It's great. And Boy's a Liar, which is perfectly fine in its own right, but actually is a nice pairing with Ice Spice, who lays down you know one of her short, compact verses like she does, as we know, and it was honestly a great pairing between the two of them. It's uh, if Ice Spice is what it take took to push Pink Panthers further up to the top, totally cool with it because I think it's actually a really nice nice pairing. Um, but yeah, I think overall, just like it's such a package, this album, and it's still pretty brief, even though it's a lot longer than her past project, which was like eighteen minutes long. So we're watching a ascendant star evolve and become more refined in real time. And that's, of course, really exciting when you can just recognize the talent and the artistry and the vision and all that. Um, That's the type of thing I like to celebrate when I listen to music that excites me. And I think Pink Panthers is heaven knows it's definitely definitely something worthy of that praise. So one of my favorite albums of the year, I'm pretty sure it'll be in my top 10. So make sure you come back and check out my best albums of the year when I talk about that next month. And of course, let me know, how would you feel about Pink Panthers' Heaven Knows? Did you like the subtle but noticeable artistic changes she made as she's become a more refined artist? And what's your favorite song? For more music reviews, subscribe, and I'll see you next time. What's up? Welcome back to Nostalgia. Dave here with a review of Digimon Adventure 2, The Beginning. Yes, the latest Digimon film out for a two-day brief release in the United States after recently being released over in Japan. This is the latest Digimon movie and the first one since uh, Digimon Last Evolution Kazuna came out back in 2020. And Adventure 2, the beginning, of course, this is a notable drop for the Digimon franchise because this is the purported, you know, final film, final entry for the cast of Digimon Adventure 2. Of course, the second Digimon series, the sequel-ish series to the original Digimon franchise. Last Evolution Kazuna, that film was the final uh, iteration for that original Adventure 1 cast. So the two, you know, most hyped, like I think, character sets for the Digimon franchise, you know, recently celebrating its 20th anniversary. It's the final, the final go with the OG characters, basically, is how this is uh, positioned. Of course, Digimon, a franchise that I think has endured in a really interesting way between really TV, the occasional movie, and then kind of underrated steady supply of video games as well. The Digimon franchise, by no means the biggest blockbuster anime franchise. Of course, we know there's another Mon franchise out there that uh, is bigger in just about every way. Nonetheless, I've always had a lot of nostalgia for Digimon because like Pokemon, I very quickly became invested in Digimon and I have really fond memories of like watching the series, you know, weekly after school just kind of getting absorbed 
into that storytelling, into that lore. And Adventure 1, Adventure 2, as well as the third series, Digimon Tamers especially, those three really uh, I have a nostalgic place in my heart for. So, you know, I think new Digimon movies coming out, continuing the story, has always interested me. And it was kind of disappointing that the first kind of like revival of the original cast, the six film series Digimon Adventure Try, that they started back in 2015, that was like a pretty uh, resounding disappointment. And that was, you know, kind of leaving a uh, bland taste in the mouth, I think, of the Digimon faithful. But Last Evolution Kazuna, that one came out, and honestly, that blew me away. I think that is up there with Digimon Tamers as some of the most profound and effective Digimon storytelling and really a shining example of why Digimon is a celebrated franchise because there's a lot of intelligence and a lot of thematic depth to an anime series created for children. And I think that's why a lot of people still really ride for Digimon, where it is, I mean, I'll, I'll just say it's a better anime in every way than Pokemon ever was, even if Pokemon overall has surpassed it. Um, and I'm a big Pokemon fan, but I'll, I'll gladly admit that. Last Evolution Kazuna was a really meaningful conclusion to the Adventure 1 story, and I think a really fitting and touching grace note, really satisfying for fans, really doing right by the characters, primarily Ty and Matt, you know, the two lead protagonists. But again, just being mature and growing up as its characters in story were growing up. It's a really think, impressive thing to get from a franchise like this to kind of evolve and mature for its 20th anniversary with its like final send-off for its original characters. Yeah, I, think, I think it was really well done. I was hoping that Digimon Adventure 2 at the beginning would give you the same sense of feeling for the Adventure 2 cast. Unfortunately, I gotta say, Adventure 2 at the beginning is a gigantic letdown, and I, it's primarily because it doesn't do what Last Evolution Kazuna did. It doesn't really come across as a grace note for this cast. It does not come across as like a final send-off even though it purportedly is still is that. You know, I think the biggest sin with Adventure 2 at the beginning is that we just spend so much time with a character we just met. And Digimon has done this in the past with some of its other movies, introducing new characters that have a big part in the story. But you can't do that with what's supposed to be the send-off movie for the OGs. Like, Davis and Ken and Cody and the squad, they are supporting characters to this new character, Louie. And that choice just seems like a fundam fundamental mistake, unless this is not, in fact, the final send-off movie. But I still feel like it kind of is. And it's a kind of baffling mistake, because Avenger 2 The Beginning is directed by Tomohisha Taguchi and written by Akatsuki Yamatoya. Those are the same writer and director as Last Evolution Kazuna. So they knew how great their last effort was, and they heard all the plaudits, I'm sure, so I'm just kind of baffled at why they thought this was, like, a good thing to do. You know, it introduces some interesting lore elements that I don't think break anything with lore by any means, but it's definitely compelling and interesting. And Digimon has always been, I think, a storytelling franchise that has played a little fast and loose with its lore and canon, not afraid to kind of switch up interpretations of things. Not a problem. But I just think that the fundamental choice is spending all this time with this new character yeah, and having everything the OG cast does in direct service to this new character just was a mistake to me. And I, I was I just wanted more time with the OG OG crew. Um, and th not that there's not good stuff about this time we spend with Louie. 
it's a lot of the stuff we celebrate with Digimon, mature themes. In this case, you know, I think trauma and loneliness. I mean, there's literal child abuse in this movie when we flash back to Louis as a, a young boy. Um, Ukumon, his his Digimon partner. When Ukumon dies, it's like straight up body horror. You know, it, 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 there's there's some darkness to Adventure Two: The Beginning, which again I, I I celebrate. But God, it's just I was just so let down by the lack of time we spent with the OG crew. You know, I, I just thought it was I thought it, I thought it was a big letdown. You know, in terms of the lore, like having Louis be and be the first Digi Destin, the first human to have a Digimon partner. Interesting thought, right? That Ukamon's like ability to like grant wishes and like keep the partner happy. Having that kind of be the inciting incident that led to the creation of the phenomena of Digidestin and humans having Digimon partners. Interesting, right? Like we never really thought of like the inciting reason for what happened to our original cast. I don't think it de- definitely doesn't change anything with how you appreciate or think about that cast, but it's kind of like a, uh, you know, origin, you know, as the title suggests, the beginning of the Digimon storytelling. But like, that's not what I was really hyped to spend time with, with the final moments with the Adventure 2 cast, you know? So it's like a intriguing idea for a Digimon movie, but just not the idea that you should have done for the send-off movie. It's a kind of baffling mistake to me. Um, it's cool that like there's not a whole lot of like action in this, we get a lot of evolutions, even some DNA digivolving. All that's fun, and I think the animation is pretty cool. Although I think last evolution Kazuna had a more artistic, like flair to its animation. I think that's a little little better looking, but this one still looks very good, of course. Um, and obviously, Digimon's come such a long way from an animation quality standpoint. Um, it's cool that there's not a lot of time spent on action. Like I, I, don't, I don't watch Digimon for the action or for the battling per se. So that was a nice choice as well. One note I just got to say is, I don't think I realized this because I watched Digimon first, but the voice actor who voices Davis with the English dub, Brian Donovan, the established voice actor, he is also the voice of Rock Lee in Naruto, again, the English dub. And I never put that together before, but watching Adventure to the Beginning Davis just sounded like Rock Lee the entire time. Like the performance is like identical. And that was just kind of funny to me. I never, I didn't really realize that uh, going in. Not that it's bad voice acting. It's certainly good voice acting, but it's just funny that like I was just thinking of Rock Lee the whole time. You know, ultimately I think this is just kind of what we think about with Digimon, right? You had Adventure Try, something with so much potential that really uh, just underwhelmed due to like a, a lack of, I think, compelling consistency. Uh, you had Last Evolution Kazuna in the pantheon of Digimon storytelling. Then you have the Digimon reboot series, basically just a reboot or redo of Adventure 1. And that has been celebrated for its animation, but also viewed as a letdown. I think Adventure 2 at the beginning people were feeling was going to be another step in the positive direction. And again, not there's not good things about this, but I think the choices just don't feel great for a fan, even if it's a perfectly fine time. So... I would love to spend more time with the Adventure 2 cast following this, if it hasn't been obvious. But now, I will put my all my eggs in the basket of, let's get one final film for Digimon Tamers. Digimon Tamers, the best Digimon form of storytelling, the shining example of why it's such a mature and impressive anime when the storytelling's done right. A final send-off for that core trio, 
And again, why that show was so great, partially because it was a small cast. Like, oh, man, if they could do a Last Evolution Kazuna movie for the Digimon Tamers crew, man, now we're talking. Now, I know, I'm not sure if you'd have Konaka involved. Um, of course, we know Hosada has been uninvolved with Digimon for some time. Nonetheless, that would be compelling to me. But otherwise, you know, I think Path Forward, they can just find like a way to keep an ongoing series going. I know they just recently had Digimon Ghost Game, but if they could get like a just a consistent series going that maybe is inspired by the OGs, but obviously completely independent. I don't know. Digimon has a lot of paths that it can go down. I think that's what's kind of fun about it to the faithful. So honestly, hard to predict what will happen, but let me know. How are you feeling about Digimon Adventure 2, the beginning? Did you find it a big letdown like me? If not, please tell me why you liked it. I'd love to know. And for more anime reviews, more TV reviews, movie reviews, subscribe. And I'll see you next time. What's up? Welcome back to Nostalgia. Dave here with a review of Loki Season 2 on Disney+. Plus. Yes, the God of Mischief is back for presumably his final season. You know, I think the way Loki Season 2 ended certainly does not make it leave a compelling case to continue the Loki series. I think this would be a great place for it to end. And ultimately, I think the series came on really strong in Season 2 to have a really awesome finale and ending. And pretty satisfied with it overall. I think at this point, it's pretty clear that Loki is the strongest MCU Disney Plus series. Loki and WandaVision, really a tier of their own. And I think there's a lot of kind of intriguing developments with this one. You know, I think on one hand, it starts off a little differently than how season one was going. Where season one, I think, was a bit more existential and... I think actually kind of like narratively quite groundbreaking for the MCU of really this like the uh, Sylvie-Loki dynamic where they're both literally versions of themselves but they seem to have this developing relationship between each other. That kind of stuff is more or less dropped with season two and it's a lot more of MacGuffin chasing with season two which I thought I would be more displeased with it than it ended up being because ultimately and I think like a lot of a lot of the Season 2 mumbo-jumbo with um, everything the TVA is trying to do, where they're trying to protect the timelines as the timelines continue to branch and expand following the death of He Who Remains at Sylvie's hand in the Season 1 finale, right? That's kind of like the key, like, moving of the plot with Season 2. And as a result, Loki has this time-skipping thing that keeps happening to him that he can't control, and... Uh, the guys have to basically run around, uh, Loki and Mobius, they have to run around to fix what's going on with the TVA before they all die. And I think, honestly, see, I mean, the series really picks up when Jonathan Major shows up. And who knows if this is the last time we see Jonathan Majors in the MCU. Obviously, as Kang, he's now played Kang in three really meaty different parts. He remains... Uh, Kang the Conqueror from Ant-Man and the Wasp, Mahantamania, and then Victor Timely, which is the Kang version that we get debuted in Season 2 of Loki. And Episode 3 of Loki Season 2, when we go to the Chicago World's Fair back in the day and we meet Victor Timely, I think from there Season 2 gets to really pick up. It's an interesting performance from Majors because he's kind of playing Timely as just kind of like a manic, like frazzled guy which is quite different than how he plays He Who Remains, who is much more charismatic and opulent and pompous, you could say, but 
really engaging and engrossing. Um, everything with timely, uh, and timely is like clear, like re- requiredness to the story. There was all this whispering about did they did Loki did they edit Loki around Majors? No, they did not. Majors is all over the series, and again, we'll see if he returns as Kang in the MCU or they recast him as someone else. So if you know if that domestic violence trial ends poorly for Majors, I'd imagine his time will be cut short by the MCU and they will recast him because it's Kang who has many versions of himself. Easy to recast, not that big a deal. Um, but we've got to let that play out because it's a serious thing and it's going to trial later this month. So it is what it is. That being said, I thought Majors was really great, especially as He Who Remains. In the finale, you had to spend a lot more time with He Who Remains. I wasn't expecting that. And that is kind of my second like big note about why I like how a season two ended because we kind of get go through the, uh, the 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 time looping where we end up replaying scenes from past the past Loki season two stuff as Loki is trying to frantically figure out how he can uh, get things to work basically and again like the monotony of the TVA's quest the details the logic I don't even think you have to necessarily lock into that too much but like it's fun when you're watching like a character try and fix the time loop and going back eventually that brings us all the way back to the season one finale and we get to see majors as he who remains again as Loki tries to convince Sylvie not to kill him because he knows that by killing he who remains creating all these you know never-ending exponentially increasing timelines it's just it'll kill everything it's just not you you can't can't get it done as a result you get a lot more majors you have a lot more of he who remains and the way he basically reveals to loki that he was kind of seeing all this coming and snaps his finger to control time and realizing that loki himself ends up has the ability to control time and stop time as well that was all pretty fun, man. Kicking with gas. So again, it might be the last of majors, but um, good or bad, he, he I think he went out on a high note if this is the, the last go-around, you know? And the conclusion where Loki ends up taking the place of he remains as the supreme person at the end of time, basically keeping all of the timelines uh, in order and keeping time intact, basically replacing the role of he who remains. And as a result, preventing Renslayer from going back in time to get make Victor timely, do what he did, and become a version of Kang, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. All pretty compelling. Like it's a pretty compelling place for Loki to go. And now I think like Loki season two feels really at home as a two season series. And do I expect we'll maybe see Loki again in one of the Avengers films, some kind of event film of some kind? Yeah, I think that's honestly pretty likely. But we don't need to see the series again because this was a really, I think, effective grace note for the character, to be honest. And like, talk about Tom Hiddleston being able to rest for quite some time. I think he's earned it as you know one of the OG MCU pillars, to be honest. He's been in the MCU for over ten years at this point, and yeah, I think um, it's 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 pretty interesting. And just again, like we were talking about this with season one, but the journey, the character of Loki in the MCU has gone on is so beyond, I think, anyone's wildest imaginations. And this was, I think, a really satisfying way for the character to end, at least end for now. And that was pretty cool. You know, along the way, uh, just some notes. Like, I liked uh, 
Rocky Quan as Ouroboros. Quan's uh, really selling everything, even if most of the stuff he's talking about uh, doesn't make much sense to me, to be honest. But I enjoyed spending time with him. Quan's just really winning uh, as a presence in general, I think, as people have realized in the last two years. I thought Rafael Casal as X5 at the TVA, great performance as well. Um, I gotta say, the uh, the shrinking box as a way to die, terrifying stuff. Like, you don't have, we, we didn't see anyone get completely shrunk. We just knew it was happening right out of frame. And man, it's it's pretty haunting. Um, you know, I think Renslayer's role in this season, you know, Mavatara, not quite as strong as, and integral as she was in season one, but it was cool to have the revelation that she was basically a minion of He Who Remains the whole time and her memory had been wiped so she didn't actually realize it and thus we were the audience was unaware of it until we learned it in season two that was pretty interesting um and i think there's a lot of stuff that felt a bit superfluous like some of the stuff at the tva with like um the minute men who were uh going out to prune all the timelines as like a last ditch effort to save things when they get killed in the drinking box it's not like anything like you're super concerned about because like you didn't have a connection to those characters wasn't a big deal um so i think on one hand like this is definitely a more uneven season than season two but like, the core plot points in terms of like meaningful plot progression are all satisfying enough that it feels still like a enjoyable season but overall i think it's a worse season than season one i don't think that's really even saying all that much to be honest just because like the loom and the temporal uh radiation and there's just a lot of like hard bumbo jumbo that like it's kind of hard to keep straight the way season one starts where you're just kind of throwing reins at the thick of things um i certainly had to take a second like kind of catch back up and realize like what we are what we cared about and things like that so yeah again i'm really happy with how it ended and it's honestly a really interesting place to have loki now as a character with so much control over the timeline quote unquote so yeah, honestly, they did a pretty good job. Be very curious to know what Michael Waldron thinks, considering he left the project after season one and got a lot of the credit for how season one went. Very curious what he thinks of things. Nonetheless, between the Marvels and Loki, we're now going to be in a bit of a quiet time for the MCU, where apart from the Echo series quickly being dropped in full at the beginning of January, we don't have another movie coming out until Deadpool 3 recently dated for July. All the other movies have been delayed till 2025 so mc's in a bit of a quiet time resetting time and i think if when they come back everything feels flushed out and get some strong movies some strong efforts this kind of brief reset time might actually be successful and people watch it feel good about it but for now i think we're kind of uh quieting before the new storm you know in the lead up to the Avengers movies. So, I mean, those Avengers movies are still so far away, as we know. But between how the Marvels ended and Loki having some monumental ending here in terms of how it affects Kang, it does feel like we're slowly making some progress towards uh, the Kang dynasty as like a central through line, as like a storytelling device in the MCU. And I'd imagine the Deadpool 3, Deadpool and Wolverine stuff, that'll be taking place in a separate universe, just like how the post-trend scene in the Marvels is taking place in a separate universe. So we're getting there, and that is interesting. And of course, we have to see what happens with the Majors trial, figure out what's going on with Kang moving forward. 
I mean, I think they should be pot committed to Kang. If, if they need to recast him, recast him. They should be pot committed to Kang, I think. I mean, that Variety report was pretty damning about how things were going behind the scenes, but the notion of dropping Kang for Doctor Doom just didn't make a lot of sense to me. Just recast Kang if you need to recast Kang. Or if Majors is able to reprise the role and gets, you know, acquitted at the trial, he'll be great as Kang because he's been awesome so far, especially I think He Who Remains is the best version of the character. So we'll see what happens. But let me know, how'd you feel about Loki season two? Do you think it's a worse season than season one, but still a satisfying conclusion for the series? Like me, do you disagree? Let me know. And for more TV reviews, subscribe and I'll see you next time. What's up? Welcome back to Nostalgia. Dave here with a review of the Marvels, the latest Marvel Cinematic Universe film starring Brie Larson, Tiana Paris, and Aman Falani. Been a minute for Captain Marvel as a character. Of course, Captain Marvel, solo debut film, 2019 in between Avengers Infinity War and Avengers Endgame, became a big hit as a result, presumably buoyed by Avengers hype. And since then, you know, we've only really seen her in those Avengers movies, and it's, it's been a bit of a wait. And Kamala Khan, of course, debuted last year on Disney Plus in the Miss Marvel series. And Tiana Paris popped back up for a little bit in WandaVision, getting the powers for Monica Rambeau. So... Now we have you know a trio movie as opposed to just a straight up Captain Marvel sequel. Even though I think a lot of the plot is still very much Captain Marvel-y, uh, at least per that last movie we got. And obviously, this is coming at a troubling, distressing time for Marvel and the MCU. MCU has been on a cold streak. Ant Man: The Wasp: Quantum Mania, Secret Invasion, Jonathan Majors, legal issues. A lot, of, lots been going on. Most of it not very good. Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, very good. But that is now over, and we attribute most of that credit to James Gunn and the trilogy capper continuity, right? So, what is the MCU to do? Well, for starters, we know that they're going to have a lot of time to figure it out because partially due to the, the SAG strike and the writer's strike, they've delayed most of their movies to 2025 and beyond. Only Deadpool 3 is releasing next year. So... I think we're going to get a few TV shows. The Agatha Show, Echo, dropping in the beginning of January. Ironheart as well. That's it. So the MCU is going to be a bit quiet. And honestly, the Marvels, there's a lot of negativity about this, right? We know the box office projection is quite low, which I think is not necessarily to blame solely on this movie. I think there's definitely a lack of hype for this movie, given that there's not a lot of love for the first Captain Marvel, but also this Marvel cold streak has kind of become a snowball rolling down the hill type situation where things keep compounding. So performance aside, I'm actually pretty pleased with how the Marvels turned out, notably going in with low expectations, but the way uh, when and the way it's ended and what's what it's what it's actually setting up, I was quite pleased with. I was not expecting the Marvels to actually be like a storytelling and continuity pushing forward movie to the degree that it was you know i thought oh it would establish uh kamala khan you know miss marvel Amon Vellani for the movie audience and that would kind of be the main aim and that is certainly done by the way Amon Vellani amazing on in, in this the best part of it really funny feels right at home definitely feels like a pillar of the mcu going forward but along those lines there are some interesting places where this movie leaves you. Now, 
obviously there was a lot of mixed reception going into this movie. I had a good time with it. There are a lot of faults to it, but I actually enjoyed it more than I expected to. And I think some of these faults are quite uh, interesting in the sense that how is the MCU still making these mistakes? One of these, of course, is just the unmemorable villain. Uh, in this case, it's Dar Ben, a Kree uh, warlord with a connection to Captain Marvel. And a lot of the stuff with the villain is kind of plot points picked back up and continued from plots in Captain Marvel 2019. And we've certainly had unmemorable villains with the MCU. It's kind of been a common refrain for the most part. Unless the villain was really awesome, like a Thanos, like a Killmonger, like a Vulture. Usually they're in the complete other side of the camp where they're not very good. And this is definitely towards the very bottom of the, the barrel. That being said, I didn't necessarily care because I was just having a good time with the three characters. I think the way the movie is structured where Captain Marvel, Monica Rambeau, Miss Marvel, they basically get their powers uh, temporarily connected and stuck in a web because they're all like light-based powers. I think a lot of the the logic of how that power swapping worked, where when they would both try and use their powers at the same time, they would swap places. The logic of that was a bit confusing to follow, but I just went with it because I think that opening set piece where they're in a fight and they keep basically teleporting around and stuff as they start t destroying uh, the Khan family household as people are fighting and flying through the roofs and whatnot. That was really fun. I think that was kind of Marvel comedic action at its best, to be honest. Um, and I think from there, like we also have uh, Samuel L. Jackson, Nick Fury, and uh, you know his space station up, up, up in the clouds there, uh, Saber. That was kind of the big like other MCU tether here. Obviously, uh, Fury and Rambeau starting out in close uh, connection to each other as they're working together. And I was not expecting to have as much Fury again. You know, Fury was a big part of Captain Marvel 2019, even having those flashback scenes with, uh, you know, Rambo's uh, mother, played by Lashana Lynch. And we have Fury once again, and I think Fury ends up being uh, a big part of a lot of the, some of the best humor as well, because uh, Captain Marvel's cat, that's not a cat, Goose, you know, the tentacle cat, uh, we get a lot more of the cat stuff in this. And I think the cat stuff is just really funny. It's great stuff. Um, in general, the humor, I think, I think is this is some of the best MCU humor we've had in a while, certainly some of the most consistent. And a lot of it is really due to Aman Vellani's charm. You know, she, I think, kind of plays off Rambo and Carol Danvers really well. Like, she gets some of the best laugh lines, the best reactions. It, it all works. Also, the Khan family, still very charming to spend time with. I think they all have kind of great chemistry uh, together and also make for some uh, great humor. Um, you know, I think, I think one of the issues with, you know, the Captain Marvel franchise, how this is all gone is that like Brie Larson hasn't quite felt like the best fit for the MCU, which is definitely not something I saw coming. Of course, Brie Larson was in a ton of hit indie movies, really critically acclaimed actress, of course, culminating in winning best actress for Room. And yet, you know, I think between her role in the MCU as Carol Danvers, those roles are even more recent uh, role in Fast and Furious with, the, with with Fast X. I think Brie seems to struggle or at least be a bit inconsistent with her performance against green screen. 
you know, I think Brie, like her kind of default, just kind of get like really wide eyed. But you can tell she seems a bit uncomfortable in those like bigger, bigger scenes. You know, I think the scene she shares like on their ship when it's her, Rambo and Kamala was more heartfelt scene. She's great in. And, um, you know, she's, she's, she's a great actor, but I think she does kind of struggle with some of the, the bigger set piece scenes, which is a bit unfortunate, you know, and obviously she's talked a lot about, um, not having the best time being the MCU, catching flack online, which is unfortunate. So I'm definitely curious to like what degree Captain Marvel continues in the MCU. Um, this movie makes no mistake about highlighting Kamala Khan's potential moving forward for the MCU, but I'm I'm sure we'll be getting more Carol Danvers in the future, considering we know we'll be getting more Rambo as well as the uh, post-credits lets on. But uh, yeah, I think also one of the things I kind of uh, appreciated about the Marvels as well was the Act 2 set piece when we're on the water planet and they have a connection to Carol's past. And there's basically this singing moment and the dance scene. There's a, a scene about me with music involved. And it just felt very, I think, unique to the MCU. And even if it might come across as a little corny or maybe even not executed on that well, I really appreciated the attempt to like do almost like a type of camp like that the way it the way it went. So I thought that was pretty enjoyable. I have to say though, like later on in that following that like music scene where you had the, the, the set piece, the, the action set piece on the water planet, the Marvel visual palette really does not do the sets any favors. The sets look way blander than they should. Those should not be like negatively viewed sets, but they just look so stale the way like the, the, the classic like MCU film grading goes. And it's such a stark contrast to how Loki looks on Disney Plus where the production design just goes so much further and looks so much better. Um, so, you know, I think overall, I thought the CGI was pretty, pretty good, definitely pretty acceptable in, in the Marvel. It's nothing to complain about, but yet like just the way, like the th- the lighting in the MCU, like the on brand, like lighting definitely makes the sets look worse than they probably should. Um, so yeah. And on the one hand, like I understand why some people might not like the Marvels at all, right? You have uninspiring visuals, you have a very unmemorable villain and, you're already doing it with a lead character who's not the most popular in the MCU uh, pantheon. So I understand why this is not going to work for everyone. And in general, I think the plot, it, it's pretty hackneyed. Like, even if you're super into the Carol Danvers continuity from the first film, there's a lot of, I think, like, skipping around. Like, like Darben, I think there's, there's a lot of show-don't-tell going on here. Where or, or telling and not showing necessarily, where like the whole Kree backstory and the Kree versus Scroll War, all, all this you know hard MCU like storytelling monotony, right? I don't know, like we're, we're just kind of skipping some steps here, and I was able to roll with it. It's fine because again, I was having a good time with the humor and the lighter stuff. Um, I think you don't have to really care about that plot stuff, but if you're interested, at least it's there, right? It's continuing that kind of story, so I don't think it's all bad per se. Um, I also, I quite like Tiana Paris as uh, Monica Rambeau, especially when the trio are all together because her more um, trying to keep her cool, keep her composure, keep her professionalism. Um, that was, I think, really enjoyable. And watching Rambeau start to let let her guard down with the others as the story progressed, I think that went pretty well. Um, 
so yeah, like I, I had a good enough time with it. I think it's like a it's a bottom tier Marvel movie, but one of the better bottom tier Marvel movies, if that makes sense. I mean, we're talking thirty plus movies at this point. They can't all be great, but I think. Honestly, this would be this would probably have a lot less negativity around it if it was coming out in a time where we didn't have a lot of other MCU disappointments and MCU uneasiness happening, you know. So that uh, alas, that's where we are. However, two key things happen at the end of this movie, and in a sense, they're probably the most essential things that that kind of take place for MCU storytelling. But it's good to feel this way that we're invested in the future of the MCU storytelling once again. We kind of felt. A little uh, loss at sea with the MCU right now. One of those happens at the very end of the movie, where we see Kamala Khan come across Haley Steinfeld's Kate Bishop, of course, introduced on the Hawkeye Disney Plus series, and she kind of makes jokes about the fact that they're both young hero, but then mentions that she's putting a team together and recruits uh, Kate Bishop. Very exciting. Not that we didn't know that like Young Avengers was coming, but now we actually see it on the runway. Kamala Khan, Miss Marvel, Kate Bishop, and we know there's more people to come. Very excited. Maybe they'll be led by Tom Holland, Spider-Man. Who's to say? But we're getting Young Avengers. That's really cool. Looking forward to it. The other big development is, of course, in the post credit scene for the Marvels. And we have not really talked about a meaningful MCU post credit scene in some time. It's fun to be back. But following what happens at the end of the Marvels, where Monica Rambeau has disappeared through like space time to save you know save the world the classic uh third act uh disaster aversion right as we know i was not expecting monica to be dead and we see her it's revealed that she's not dead right away in the post-credit scene and she wakes up next to lashana lynch but when based off how they react we realize that this lashana lynch this maria rambo is not monica's mother and then, of course, we realize we're in a completely different universe because who does Lashana Lynch speak to? None other than Beast, the Blue Beast, of course, from X-Men. Once again, played by Kelsey Grammer, who played him back in X-Men The Last Stand back in 2006. That's just a cool touch. But And, if, and he names drops Charles, a.k.a. Charles Xavier. Really cool for a number of reasons. One, it's like the official confirmation that the X-Men are coming, and I think, you know, if the fact that this happened through space-time, it's pretty clear that the Secret Wars, Kang Dynasty, storytelling, it's going to lead us into a universe where the X-Men already exist and already are established. And that's obviously very exciting. That's how people thought this was going to go. But again, we see it on the runway now, and we can get excited. Also, I think underrated aspect of this, obviously Beast and the X-Men will get all the attention, all the oxygen. But having Lashana Lynch back in the MCU is really great because, of course, Lashana Lynch playing... Um, Monica Rambeau's mother in the main MCU canon passing away during the blip from sickness, Lashana Lynch. Great actor, great action star, as we've seen in The Woman King, in No Time to Die, charismatic performer. It's great that she's back in the MCU because she can be an asset to MCU storytelling, in my opinion. So I'm happy that you have uh, this version of Lashana Lynch available moving forward. You know, I thought the last go-around we'd have with her would kind of be what we saw in Multiverse of Madness, where it was like a cool nod, where a different universe, she was the Captain Marvel. Alas, we're going to get some more. I believe this is the binary version of just like a Captain Marvel alter ego in the comics, from, from, from what I understand. Either way, I'm really happy that LaShawn Lynch will be back, 
and we get the confirmation that both the X-Men and the Young Avengers are closer than we think. So those are two things that are more or less independent of the movie. So perhaps I'm grading on a curve, but I genuinely enjoyed myself despite a lot of obvious flaws to the movie. So given the low expectations, I, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty pleased. Maybe it's just the rose-colored glasses at the look ahead with the reveals and stuff who's to say but let me know how'd you feel about the marvels are you as pleasantly surprised as i am are you excited about the post-grad scene and the young avengers reveal let me know and for more movie reviews subscribe and i'll see you next time what's up welcome back to nostalgia dave here with a review of the killer the new film from david fincher starring michael fassbender out now on netflix yes fincher is back in the netflix fold at that his first film since Mank came out in 2020, and continuing Fincher's relationship with Netflix, now his second film with them. Of course, he also helmed Mindhunter for the series as well, the TV show. Great show. And yeah, to me, this was very exciting. Of course, we love Fincher. Whenever he releases anything, it's appointment viewing. But it's return of Michael Fassbender. Fassbender had taken some time off from acting, partially due to just spending some time with his wife, Alicia Vikander, we know they live in Portugal. We know they are now parents. They seem to have been enjoying their lives, but our Fassbender in particular, coming back to work, and I'm really happy he did because I thought he was great in The Killer, and I thought this was an awesome movie. The Killer is, you know, it, it's kind of like a classic, like, genre, like, revenge thriller, but when it's made by Fincher, you know, it's just executed on so well. This film is also notably written by Andrew Kevin Walker, who Fincher previously worked with for Seven, one of his best movies, of course. And The Killer is adapted from a French graphic novel called Le Tueur. And some people have been talking about, like, could you make this into an IP? Could this be a franchise? Because it has a source material and whatnot. And I'm not really sure if Fassbender and Fincher are necessarily looking to do something like that. I suppose it's possible, but I'm going to bet against that happening despite the fact that I think the killer is great. Um, but yeah, it's pretty pretty awesome, you know, and the way it's structured, it's heavy narration from Fassbender's nameless assassin character. He's speaking his thoughts to you, uh, dictating what he's doing kind of the whole time. It has this uh, six-chapter structure at that, and really, chapter one, set in Paris, is really what drives the whole movie, where we watch... Uh, the assassin laying in wait for his mark in an abandoned WeWork building. And he can he speaks to the meticulous nature of his process and how he plans and prepares for his job. And that's why he's such a good assassin, because of his process-oriented, detail-oriented life, which also leads to lots of tedium and routine and monotony and boring waiting and patience and all of that that is what this movie is basically about be and and despite all that there's just so much tension throughout the movie speaking to the scripts speaking to performance speaking to the direction it's able to really i think capture your attention despite the fact that it's quite methodical and i think a lot has been made about the meaning of this movie and the fact that it's a very meta self-reflective piece of work on the part of director david fincher because fincher of course has a reputation infamously at this point for being so meticulous on set you know demanding multiple takes being so 
precise in his control over the visual palette of his work and things like that. That that's part of Fincher's brand and Fincher's legend at this point, right? And he basically made a movie and a character that's about that very phenomenon. And that that to me is just funny when you can see artists put themselves into their work in such a meta way for the audience to appreciate, and I really respect it. Uh, but even if you don't even know that about Fincher, um, I think the movie is just really, really fun, you know, and like I think the chapter structure works quite well where, uh, you know, in chapter one in Paris, uh, the hit goes wrong. Uh, the assassin misses. He doesn't kill his mark, and thus he has to flee. And unfortunately, uh, he endures the ire of his employer and the client uh, who hired the hit because of his failure to execute it. Uh, so chapter two, we go to the Dominican Republic and we see his lavish uh, hideout, but we realize that his um, girlfriend who was living there was attacked by people seemingly looking uh, for him, assumingly looking for him. And it becomes a revenge thriller as the killer seeks to uh, get revenge and also protect his his future and basically tie up all these loose ends from these people that were trying to tie up the loose end that was him following the failed hit. Um, and there's just there's, we get to see some kills. We get to see him kill uh, really innocent people or seemingly innocent people, such as the cab driver in two chapter two, uh, the secretary in chapter three. Um, but yeah, I think the kills are done in pretty matter of fact way. They don't really hide anything per se. It's grisly, but uh, you know I think that the momentum continues. Uh, chapter three go to New Orleans where we find the lawyer who is basically the um, facilitator of all the hits, played by Charles Parnell. Uh, really gruesome stuff featuring Fassbender using a nail gun on uh, Parnell. The stairway kill of the secretary is nasty as well. But even just like, you know, watching, I think watching the killer go to one of his storage units, watching the killer prepare to kill someone and take the body out in a garbage can and then decompose the body in his storage unit so he can dispose of it. Like watching the process of a hitman like this, to me, it was quite gripping. Maybe to some people, there's not quite enough action in the film. But to me, I thought I found all the process so fascinating. Um, and then chapter four in Florida, uh, he goes to kill one of the people that was responsible for attacking his girlfriend, uh, who was this kind of brutish, hulking man. And he uh, get, basically gets jumped by the guy, and they have a long beat him up, knock him out brawl in the guy's house, you know, beating the shit out of each other, throwing stuff at him, stabbing each other. Um, there's your action if you, like, wanted some action. I think it's actually pretty capable, like, hand-to-hand combat like it's obviously not john wick but it's not super far off either like i thought it looked really good and it was brutal it felt realistic um damage was being taken on both sides um and then from that point out the killer he's like bruised and bloodied for like a lot more of the movie after that he doesn't just immediately fix himself or anything kind of boring-esque i guess you could say um and to also fun with the structure because you have four with this big brawl and then chapter five the killer goes to uh, wax the other person who attacked his girlfriend alongside the brute, and that is this uh, assassin character played by Tilda Swinton. And he goes and he just jumps and or just jumps in and sits down at her restaurant uh, sitting. She's you know, having dinner, and it's such the juxtaposition of what he's doing. And he, like, he's talking about his process all the time, like stick to the plan, 
um, don't get emotional. Like he says that throughout the movie and that, and we watch him continue to not stick to the plan um, leading up to the fact that he has a terse, but real conversation with Tilda Swinton's assassin who eventually becomes, comes to accept her death uh, in a certain sense. I thought that was really done well. Swinton was really great uh, in the performance, I would say. Um, Then you have chapter six where he goes to Chicago to get the talk to the client who had hired the hit and was played by Arliss Howard, who was also at Mank. And they have a conversation and he actually lets him off, basically warns him that he could sneak into his apartment clearly so he can do anything he wants, so leave me alone, but he doesn't actually kill him. But I think the part before that in chapter six, where he's in the Equinox, basically finding a way to get access to the guy's building, like buying a fob uh, editor on Amazon and all of that. Like, again, like that kind of process, like planning stuff, that to me is the most compelling stuff uh, in The Killer. And there's a brief epilogue uh, from there. But yeah, I just think like it, it's quite well crafted. And I think the character work from uh, Fassbender, which is again, a lot of narration because he's not talking to people for almost all of the movie. Um, that's kind of what drives it. And then of course, to me, the, the Fincher meta nature of it all kind of takes it above the top as a film fan. So yeah, I mean, I hope Fincher continues to work and do fun genre stuff like he just did with The Killer. And obviously, we're all hoping Michael Fassbender is back in the swing as well. Um, Netflix, I believe it was Scott Suber, had said that they're continuing to work with Fincher, but we have not heard anything announced officially yet. But it sounds like his next movie would be with Netflix. We certainly hope it's a movie as well and not a series. But yeah. Let me know about The Killer. How did you feel about it? How would you compare it to past uh, Fincher projects? And for more movie reviews, subscribe, and I'll see you next time. What's up? Welcome back to Nostalgia. Dave here with a review of Saltburn, the new film from Emerald Fennell, starring Barry Keown, Jacob Elordi, Rosamund Pike, and others. Fennell's second film, following Promising Young Woman, her debut which was a rapturous success for her. Best Picture nomination, Best Director nomination, a win for Best Original Screenplay, a raucous hit, you know, back in 2020. And now we're back with the follow-up. And Fennell, interesting, you know, new director at this point, actor-turned-director. And Saltburn certainly of a piece with Promising Young Woman, where it's very flashy and stylish, and has lots of ideas, and has... Uh, inconsistent ways of resolving some of those ideas. But to me, Saltburn, which I will eventually spoil in this, I like Saltburn. I thought it was a really good time, really fun, and uh, certainly entertaining. It is not dull by any means. Uh, This film, set in the uh, 2000s, starring Barry Keown as Oliver, who is newly attending Oxford, and he encounters... Uh, Felix, played by Jacob Elordi, whereas Oliver, or Ollie, Ollie is, you know, from a, a broken family, not super successful, but he's on Oxford, to Oxford on scholarship, whereas Felix is very much old money, comes from wealth, and people know that about him. And this connection that they uh, end up developing kind of by chance, kind of out of pity on Felix's part, eventually leads them to leave school, I believe it's on holiday, and they go to uh, Felix's family estate named Saltburn, which is this uh, very opulent 
uh, old English castle in the countryside. And it was filmed at specifically... Uh, it was filmed at specifically Drayton House in the UK, which is a kind of obscure, like, country, you know, castle manor that has not been filmed at before. So it's a really stunning, like, setting and place to be in and spend the majority of the movie in. Uh, really cool that that was kind of what they set out to do is pick, like, a new location for this in terms of just a random, you know, old rich house. Pretty sick. Um, I, think, I think it's really effective. And this film, you know... As we get to meet the rest of the ensemble, Rosamund Pike as Felix's mother, Elspeth, completely bonkers character, very much of a piece the way Rosamund Pike has played people in, you know, like Gone Girl and I Care Lots. A great piece of casting to have Pike in this role, someone who basically introduces herself to Ollie by saying she's like allergic to ugliness or however she puts it. It was really funny. And in general, I think the movie is funny. It's provocative. It's shocking at times. And I saw it in like a really full audience and lots of audible gasps and shocks, you know, and laughs as well. There's stuff that's certainly played for laughs and ridiculous things that's very over the top that you that you enjoy. And Pike, some of her lines are certainly part of that, you know. Uh, her husband's played by Richard E. Grant, who's pretty funny as well. And then you have uh, Felix's uh, siblings, one of which is played by Allison Oliver, Venetia. And then his uh, half-brother, Farley, played by Archie uh, Mandekwe. And, yeah, I think from there, it's it's interesting because it's kind of like a movie about like obsession, but also relationships and uh, being a creep. And obviously, there's like an overall like, class parable about it because Oliver is very much not from the type of upbringing that all these people he's spending all this time with. And yet, he starts to kind of engender himself into the family despite all the weird weirdness and the things they do and just tons of hijinks begin to ensue and i think what's interesting about how the movie is structured is you don't really know i think like what the ensuing conflict is you know me going in where i don't even i didn't really watched even the trailer i was just waiting for the other shoe to drop and i was expecting and the spoilers to come i was expecting the other shoe to drop would be involving felix and his family they like scheme to bring someone to the home, bring Oliver to the home when they had like grand plans for him, assumingly nefarious plans. I was expecting that to be the angle it went down, but you're never quite sure if that's where it's leading. You just expect something to happen as your viewer. And it actually turns out it's kind of the opposite where uh, in like a grand twist at the end, it's revealed that Oliver was in fact uh, plotting to take down this family and basically steal their wealth. And it's like, quite the flip as you revisit some scenes we saw in the movie and that was um and i think that's kind of one of the more polarizing aspects of Saltburn is how effective you find uh the ending because a lot of the movie isn't super concerned about like that kind of like plot progression of ali taking the family wealth and taking everybody down and everything um i guess to some you could maybe say it's unearned or it's rushed to me, it wasn't not, not the interesting, most interesting part of the movie. I think everything earlier is much more interesting. And in, ter- in general, I think the first half does a really good job of maintaining your attention and your inquisitiveness as a viewer of like what's going to happen. And a big part of that is, I think, the chemistry and the on-screen relationship between Keon and the Lordy. Keon, I think everyone knows at this point, of course, coming off an Oscar nom last year with Banshees of Inisherin. Keon has, I think, a really like neurotic presence to him that's quite unique and. 
he does a great job in the lead role here. And a Lordy, man, it's a Lordy season, man. He's awesome in Priscilla as Elvis. He's awesome in Saltburn as well in a very different role. He's certainly proved that he'll have a very long career post-Euphoria. That much is clear. And there's definitely a hue of homoeroticism throughout the whole movie. You're never quite sure exactly what Ollie's uh, sexuality is. And he definitely plays things across the spectrum when it serves his uh, needs throughout this film. Um, and like his, you know, is he in love with Felix? Is he obsessed with Felix? What is his desire to remain close to Felix? Why is that? Obviously, the very the, the last minute ending, you start to understand it. But like watching the movie, you're trying to p- figure out like what is Ali's thing? What's it about? Like we understand that Felix is someone who casts aside, likes to cast aside people when he's no longer interested in them. And Ali doesn't come from a place where you can have that much privilege in how you act and stuff like that. But in general, the relationship is pretty interesting to parse. Um, man, there's just so much like wowing moments i'm not going to spoil what they mean but just like if you've seen the movie you would know there's stuff with the bath water there's stuff you know with a a hookup outside under the moonlight there's stuff regarding a burial plot in the dirt there's a lot of wow moments people laugh people gasp people are shocked um it's it's pretty wild i like the ending birthday party set piece just with all the extras the the all the lighting and everything of course, you have Chekhov's hedge mace at the Saltburn estate, which you know is going to impact the story eventually For as soon as you see it. It's pretty funny. Uh, Archie Mandekwe as a Farley. Pretty cool performance as well. Someone who, because he is uh, mixed race, you know, he feels like he's not fully accepted as part of this high elite society, this high elite class. And you can tell that weighs on him and how he acts. Interesting, like, side character. Maybe not fully developed, but I think Medekwe's performance certainly made a mark. Um, and how Keon played off him as well, I thought was cool. Um, I mean, at the very end, you have just an absolutely spectacular needle drop. In general, there's a lot of needle drops, a lot of 2000s needle drops. Like, uh, Alordi and, and uh, Keon briefly are seeing Mr. Brightside when they're driving. We hear some MGMT outside at Saltburn. But the ending needle drop which is the extended one take involving Keon dancing is to murder on the dance floor by sophie alex bexter and that is to me it's just a kind of like an instant classic needle drop moment and on top of that i think or part of the reason why is because Keon is completely nude like you see a ton of barry Keon dick in this movie it's kind of hilarious and uh, yeah, um, it's certainly an unforgettable movie for many reasons, and that was one of them. So despite some buzz at a Telluride when this premiered, I'm not expecting this to be an Oscar contender, certainly not to the degree that Promising Young Woman was. Promising Young Woman certainly benefited from a, a smaller Oscar feel due to COVID, but I think Saltburn, there's just there's polarizing aspects to it. Um, I, I think people would criticize the crassness and the, and the nudity and things like that, or people could criticize... Uh, whether th- all the themes are really wrapped up in a nice bow at the end. Um, th- there's holes to pick in the movie. To me, I just had such a good time with it, and I really appreciated the style, and I thought all the performances and the casting was so well done that I can ignore some of those flaws, but I do think those flaws will kind of hurt the film when it comes to award season. But at the end of the day, I think it, it proves or continues you know, what we've already thought about people like Alordi and Keown and Brosman Pike and Emerald Fennell, you know, certainly um, has things you can improve on 
as a filmmaker. I think through two movies, probably the way she ends her movies and tries to uh, conclude the meaning of her films. That's probably the most consistent criticism of her through two films. But clearly she's a stylist. She's a provocateur. She has uh, inter- interesting things on her mind. So she's the type of filmmaker that we would like to have. And hopefully she continue to get better and deliver more intriguing uh, stuff. Because I was certainly intrigued by Saltburn almost the whole time. I could tell the audience I was with was certainly feeling it. Feeling it and even if there are things that maybe uh, take you for a loop for a second, you're at least always paying attention. So yeah, I think there's a lot to recommend about Saltburn, and it's certainly a movie that people need to have their own, make their own opinion about, because there will be things you like and things you didn't like. But let me know once you've seen it, uh, which again, Saltburn doesn't actually come out for a few more days. Let me know, uh, how'd you feel about Saltburn? What was your favorite, what was your least favorite part? There's a lot to it. Let me know, and for more movie reviews, subscribe, and I'll see you next. All right, that's going to do for the pod this week. Told you it was a long one. Next week, it's going to be pretty long as well. A lot of stuff here once again. The Hunger Games comeback, the Ballad of Songs and Snakes, whatever it's called, starring Rachel Zegler. Looking forward to that. On Netflix, Coleman Domingo's Rustin, his awards play. Taika Waititi's comeback with Next Goal Wins, also featuring Michael Fassbender. On TV front, we have Monarch Legacy of Monsters, the Godzilla series that looks pretty sick not gonna lie a murder at the end of the world the fx on hulu miniseries dream scenario from a24 starring nicholas cage new music from Nicki minaj and danny brown and hypen a lot of stuff to get to here it's a busy time so make sure you subscribe youtube.com slash nostalgia pod linktree.com slash nostalgia pod leave a comment let me know what's good see the links below for the best of 2023 spotify playlist my favorite songs of the year updated weekly and i'll see you next week (laughs) 